This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Grand Prince Vasily III, ruler of Muscovy, raced toward his wife's bedchamber. The fateful day had finally arrived. His first child was about to be born. As he rushed past the windows, he heard the crack of thunder and a deluge of rain spattering against the glass. He stopped in his tracks, the weather reminding him of a prophecy he'd heard years before. If you do this evil thing, you shall have an evil son. Your nation shall become prey to terrors and tears. Rivers of blood will flow. The heads of the mighty will fall. Your cities will be devoured by flames. He shook his head. He couldn't think about those words now. His sin had already been committed. Now he must be beside his wife and greet his child. In the midst of the wind and rain, Grand Prince Vasily's first son was born. He was named Ivan IV Vasilievich. He was a beautiful baby boy, but in time, he would become Ivan Grozny, Ivan the Terrible. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. As we enter into our latest batch of dictators, we'll be discussing some of the most feared men from the medieval period, Ivan the Terrible, Genghis Khan, and Vlad the Impaler. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're diving into the early life of Ivan the Terrible, from his celebrated birth to his lauded coronation as the first czar in Russia. 
We'll also see how the young ruler slowly becomes a true despot and how he acquired absolute power. Next week, we'll explore Ivan's tumultuous reign and see how his experiment with one of the world's earliest police states ends in blood and tragedy. In 1547, Grand Prince Ivan IV Vasilievich declared himself the first Tsar of Russia. As the Tsar, Ivan was the first monarch to unite all of Russia under a centralized, unified government, establishing the Russian Empire that has since become the Russia we know today. He reigned for 28 years, but despite his accomplishments, his rule would prove to be horrid and destructive, particularly for his own people. His subjects would come to call him Ivan Grozny, a nickname derived from the Russian word for thunder, Grom. The name was meant to invoke the feeling of a torrential thunderstorm as it rolls roaring across the sky. It inspired dread in all who heard it, just as Ivan inspired fear in all who were under his control. Ivan was cruel, punishing, and paranoid, and his influence cannot be understated. But his particular brand of madness was born from a deep connection with the history of his peoples, the history of his religion, and the history of his family. These combined histories made Ivan think he was the chosen man of God, which bordered on the belief that he was God himself. During his reign, many people believed that Ivan's fate had been determined by the actions of his father, Vasily III. As Grand Prince of Muscovy, Vasily proved to be a competent ruler, well-liked by his court and his people. However, Vasily committed one major sin, divorce. The Russian people were extremely religious and devoted to Orthodox Christian principles, which had defined their cultural identity for centuries. The Russian people can trace much of their cultural heritage back to the Kievan Rus, a collection of Eastern Slavic tribes. In the year 988 CE, the Eastern Slavs ruling noble, Vladimir the Great, converted to Orthodox Christianity and legally required his people to do the same. Because of this complicated history, divorce was one of the greatest sins Vasily could commit. But Vasily's first wife was barren. This was a major problem as he needed an heir to carry on his legacy. Vasily's father, Ivan the Great, had been a noble and beloved ruler in his time. He'd conquered neighboring city-states, tripling the size of his country, and declared himself the Grand Prince of Russia, the Prince of all princes. He was the legendary liberator of the Russian people. Vasily couldn't allow his father's dynasty to end with him. So Vasily divorced his barren wife and married a 20-year-old Lithuanian refugee named Elena Glinskaya. At the time, Lithuania was one of Muscovy's greatest enemies, and the aristocracy of Muscovy, a group of warlords called the Boyers, were upset by this choice. Yet there was little the Boyers could do to stop him, and it was only a matter of time before Vasily's divorce paid off. On the 25th of August, 1530, Elena gave birth to a beautiful baby boy. To Vasily, this baby was the chosen one, 
the boy who would continue his line of Russian greatness. He named the boy after his legendary grandfather, liberator of the Russian people. The child would be called Ivan IV. For three years, Muscovy was a bright and hopeful place, but the good times wouldn't last. While on a hunt in November 1533, Vasily developed an abscess in his leg. As it began to ooze blood and pus, he realized that his life was coming to an end. He raced back to Moscow, where he summoned the Boyar Council to his deathbed. He forced the Boyars to swear allegiance to his son, his wife, and his family line. When he felt content that his legacy was secure, he invited his wife and son into his chambers to say his final goodbye. On December 3, 1533, Vasily III, beloved Grand Prince of Muscovy, died from infection. Upholding their oath, the Boyars crowned three-year-old Ivan as the Grand Prince of Moscow, ruler of Muscovy. While still a toddler, Ivan's reign had begun with tragedy, and it had begun long before he was ready. Things would only get worse from there. Ivan's mother, Elena, was established as regent, making her the acting ruler. Yet her foreign blood made some of the boyars uneasy. Things only grew more suspect when she took the man in charge of the royal stables, Prince Ivan Obolensky, as her lover, shortly after the death of her husband. Her own uncle, Mikhail Glinsky, criticized her. He felt the relationship was entirely improper and that he should, therefore, be made regent in her stead. Mikhail found some support in his cause, but Elena quickly put it to rest. As regent, she arrested her own uncle, chained him to a wall, and left him to die from protracted starvation. Ivan was only three when he witnessed this cruelty with his own young eyes. For the child prince, this level of viciousness became part of his everyday life. And as Ivan witnessed his mother treating those around him poorly, he was being treated like a god among men. All of Ivan's subjects would bow at his feet. They treated the boy with deference and dignity. Even visiting dignitaries would kneel and kiss his ring to honor him. The clergy especially treated him well, as they believed he was God's chosen prince of Russia. Young Ivan grew fascinated with the heroic kings of the Bible and the royals of Byzantium and Rome. As his studies took hold of his spirit, he began to believe that he was a direct descendant of King David, the biblical king who was said to be a man after God's own heart. He began to believe what everyone told him. He was a prince chosen by God. Everywhere he turned, he was told that he was the most important person in the world. At the same time, his mother showed that people could be disposed of with merely a word. He was the Grand Prince, and his people were his to do with as he pleased. Yet as his childhood ego inflated, he would soon face a rude awakening. On April 3, 1538, when Ivan was nearly eight years old, his mother was killed by a heart attack. She was only 28 years old, so the death seems suspicious in hindsight. However, at the time, young Ivan believed she was merely the victim of poor fortune. 
Unfortunately, he became the victim of much worse. With Elena's death, Muscovy was left without an acting ruler. Vasily Shusky, head of the Boyer Council, quickly seized power. Vasily Shusky was an intimidating and merciless man. At over 60 years old, Shusky had survived countless wars and courtside intrigues, and his mind had remained as sharp as his sword. Within a week of Elena's death, Shusky stole her belongings, arrested her lover, and banished Ivan's nursemaids to a nunnery. Shusky then surrounded Ivan with armed guards, not to protect him, but to keep him trapped within his palace. Eight-year-old Ivan, once the most powerful child in all of Muscovy, had become nothing more than a sad, orphaned prisoner. When we return, we'll see how his brutal youth shapes his eventual reign. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. After Ivan IV's mother died in 1538, the eight-year-old found himself the prisoner of Vasily Shusky, the most powerful boyar in Muscovy. Life for Ivan was dark and depressing. He was stripped of his fine clothing and forced to wear rags. He was rarely fed, and he was helpless as his guards tormented his deaf younger brother, Yuri. From time to time, Shusky would parade Ivan out before the people or force him to conduct rituals and ceremonies as if he were still in power. Shusky kept Ivan alive solely to use as a political puppet. As long as he had Ivan, Muscovy would not descend into chaos and war. He would have control. Through all of this, men carrying swords and axes stood at Ivan's side, a perpetual threat. If Ivan stepped out of line, he could easily be disposed of. Ivan's mood became as dark as the world surrounding him. Yet even in his desperation, he still had hope. Ivan knew that he was the chosen ruler of God. Shusky was just a pretender. God would punish Shusky and return the throne to Ivan once more. The young boy prayed vehemently for Shusky's death. He would kneel until his forehead touched the floor, rise and kneel again until his forehead began to bleed. Ivan's prayers would soon be answered. Within a year, Vasily Shusky died of old age. Ivan was ecstatic, but things were never that simple. With the reigning boyer out of the picture, two major factions began jockeying for power. The first was led by Ivan Shusky, Vasily's younger brother. As Vasily's rule had greatly benefited the Shusky family, Ivan Shusky wished to take the reins and continue his family's expansion of wealth and power. The other faction was led by a boyer named Ivan Belsky. The Belsky family had always been loyal to the throne. When the Shuskis took power, the Belskis had felt it was a disgrace to the oaths they had sworn to Ivan's father. 
the leader of Moscow's Orthodox Church, Metropolitan Bishop Yoasov, also supported the Belskis, as he felt the Shuskis had violated Ivan IV's divine right to rule. After a brief skirmish and a race to the Kremlin, Ivan Belsky ultimately triumphed. Thanks to him, nine-year-old Grand Prince Ivan was once again in safe hands. Ivan thanked God for delivering him from his desperation. He began to believe that his prayer held special powers. After all, he was the Grand Prince. He was chosen by God. He had helped forge this new peace with the Lord. While Ivan had grown wary of internal threats from the boyars, the child prince had not yet realized that his nation faced external threats as well. The peace provided by Belsky would only last for two years. During the reign of Ivan's father, Muscovy had avoided all-out war with its neighbors, keeping most of its conflicts relegated to minor border skirmishes. To the west, it faced other Slavic states like Livonia and Lithuania. To the south and east, it faced the fractured Khanates, Kazan, Astrakhan, and Crimea. These Khanates were run by the Tatars, who were predominantly Muslim. The religious differences between them and the Orthodox Muscovites often made them adversaries. The Khanates and Muscovy would use the smallest excuse to invade each other. When Ivan was 10 years old, Khan Saip Gwairi, ruler of Crimea, decided to invade simply because he thought he could win the war. Khan Gwairi even went so far as to declare his invasion beforehand, sending a letter to the 10-year-old Ivan that read, I shall come upon you. I shall stand before Moscow in your estate on the Sparrow Hills. I shall let loose my army in all directions. I shall enslave your land. Ivan was terrified. An army of more than 100,000 soldiers was coming solely to destroy him. As the Tatar army marched into Muscovy territory, Ivan Belsky's brother, Dmitry Belsky, assumed command of the Russian army and marched south to meet the Crimean Tatars in open combat. Meanwhile, Ivan Shusky, the man who had once struggled with Ivan Belsky for control of the Grand Prince, assembled his own army and marched east to meet the forces of the Khan of Kazan, who had allied with Crimea. Muscovy was being invaded on all sides by almost all of its enemies at once. Ten-year-old Grand Prince Ivan had known fear before, but none quite like this. His age prevented him from leading his own army, but he knew he must do something in defense of his country. Ivan dressed himself and his brother in royal robes, then marched to the Uspensky Cathedral. There he prayed, O most holy sovereign mother of God, be merciful to us Christians. Be merciful to us, your children, and save us and all Christendom from the infidel Khan Saip Gwairi, who is advancing against me and against all the Russian land with great confidence. Protect me and all the Russian land, lest the infidels say, where is their God in whom they put their trust? While Ivan's prayers may or may not have reached God, they certainly reached the hearts of his people. Ivan's army was filled with religious fervor, 
each man swearing to die in defense of the Grand Prince, their god's chosen ruler. The fighting began shortly after as the Crimean army attempted to cross the Oka River. Dmitry Belsky's forces met them on the other side, trying with all their might to keep the Khan at bay. While the Crimean Khan had the superior numbers, the Russians had gathered a considerable force and they held a strategically beneficial position. After days of fighting, Dmitry finally beat back the Crimean army and sent the Khan fleeing to his homeland. The Russians suffered few losses and with relative ease, Dmitry Belsky won the war. Upon hearing of the victory, Metropolitan Yuasif rang the church bells. He credited Grand Prince Ivan for the victory, saying, Sovereign, we conquered by your angelic prayers and your good fortune. Once again, 10-year-old Ivan was convinced that his prayers had won the day. He had already suspected that he had a direct line to God, and now the Metropolitan and all of Moscow were telling him exactly that. Ivan thought he was protected by God, but while the external threats had been repelled, he'd been ignoring the old internal threats that had never truly gone away. Ivan Shusky had assembled his own army to fight the Khan of Kazan. Yet when the Khan heard about Crimea's defeat, his own army turned around and didn't even show up to battle. With his own army still intact and ready for battle, Ivan Shusky decided it was the perfect time to conduct a coup. On January 2nd, 1542, Shusky marched to Moscow with a strike force 300 strong. With the help of co-conspirators, he arrested the regent Ivan Belsky and Metropolitan Yuasev. Shusky proceeded to have all of Grand Prince Ivan's friends imprisoned or executed. In a matter of hours, Shusky had turned Ivan's world completely upside down. Shusky couldn't kill the Grand Prince, as the people believed his prayers had saved Muscovy. But just like his elder brother, Ivan Shusky treated Grand Prince Ivan like dirt. Shusky hadn't realized that Ivan had gotten older and much more angry. At 11 years old, Ivan had developed a greater understanding of political intrigue than he had before. In secret, he began assembling a group of loyalists within the Boyer court and within the church. As he waited for his moment to strike, he vented his anger in cruel fashion. He brought small animals like dogs and cats up to his palace and threw them off the roof, just to watch them splat against the ground. As these creatures fell from his hands, he imagined them as Ivan Shusky, as Vasily Shusky, as the Khan of Crimea. All his enemies would die by his hand, just as soon as he had the power he felt was owed to him. Ivan got a brief glimpse of hope in May 1542 when Ivan Shusky died of natural causes. Grand Prince Ivan tried to grasp power, but his faction was still too weak and he was still too young. Instead, Andrei Shusky, cousin to the other Shuskys, took over in his cousin's stead. Andrei Shusky was the most vicious and corrupt of all the Shuskys. If he saw any sign of a boyer being friendly to the Grand Prince, 
he had them flogged and exiled, attempting to isolate Ivan from all possible companionship. Ivan's hatred for Andrei Shusky became incalculable. He dreamed of the day he could take his revenge, and two years later, on December 29, 1543, he finally got his chance. Early that morning, Grand Prince Ivan met with Andre to discuss matters of state. But the vicious Andre had grown cocky. For the first time in his reign as regent, he arrived at Ivan's audience chambers without any private security. Ivan immediately ordered Andre's arrest. Ivan marched with his guards as they dragged Andre through the Kremlin all the way to the royal kennels. Ivan commanded that Andrei Shusky be sentenced to death for the high crime of exceeding his authority and offending the Grand Prince's dignity. The guards beat Andrei with clubs until he bled, then threw him to the dogs. Ivan watched with glee as the hounds tore Andrei to shreds. His vengeance had finally been realized. Ivan marched back to the Kremlin, head held high. He declared to all the boyars that Andre's death was just the beginning. Should any boyar cross him, they could expect to be treated to a similar fate. The boyars knew what he said was true. At 13 years old, Grand Prince Ivan IV had finally begun to rule. When we return, we'll see how Ivan eventually assumes absolute power. Now, back to the story. At 13 years old, Grand Prince Ivan IV had conducted his first political execution in gruesome and bloody fashion. It was his ultimate revenge and a warning sign to all who sought to control him. Ivan was no longer a tool to be used. He was a sovereign to be obeyed. Yet, while the boyars finally recognized Ivan as a threat and a power unto himself, they did not follow his commands absolutely. Ivan was still 13, and he was largely unconcerned with matters of state. Instead, Ivan used his position to treat the people of Moscow as toys for his amusement. When he was 14, he would ride through the streets robbing merchants and whipping any person who stood in his way. When he was 15, he ordered that a man's tongue be cut out for speaking rude words. The cruelty that had been exacted upon Ivan as a child was now being exacted by Ivan upon the world. And yet, despite this, Makari, the Metropolitan Bishop of Moscow, wished to officially declare that Ivan was an envoy sent by God himself. Makari was a true believer in Ivan's divine right to rule. So with limitless pomp and circumstance, Makari held a coronation ceremony on January 16, 1547. He made long and verbose speeches, often interspersed with passages of scripture. Makari declared Russia the third Rome, proclaiming that after the fall of Constantinople, Russia had taken the helm as the true seat of Christianity and the home of God's emperor, Ivan IV. Makari claimed that Ivan possessed a divine heritage, his lineage stretching back through the Kievan Rus to the Byzantine Empire, to Holy Rome, and even Jerusalem. The feats of Ivan the Great would pale in comparison to his grandsons, 
Ivan IV was destined to reunite the entirety of the Russian peoples under his rule. A claim so bold deserved a title fitting of its importance. Makari declared Ivan the first czar of all Russia. The word czar most closely translates to emperor. Czar was a title that could only be granted by the highest church officials or another czar. In Ivan's case, the title was meant to signify that he was an emperor with absolute power. Questioning Ivan meant you would be questioning God himself. For his part, 16-year-old Ivan believed the coronation was long past due. With the ceremony complete, the Metropolitan, the people, and Ivan himself believed a new era of Russian history, nay, world history, had finally arrived. Ivan decided to celebrate this new era with his first marriage. To the great pleasure of his people, Ivan selected a Russian bride, Anastasia Zakharina, also called Anastasia Romanov. Anastasia was deeply religious, kind-hearted, even-tempered, and beautiful, the ideal Russian woman of the time. She proved to have a mediating effect upon Ivan. While he believed he didn't have to answer to anyone, he did have to answer to his wife. Largely thanks to Anastasia's influence, the early years of Ivan's reign were generally positive and reform-minded. She kept his latent paranoia in check and encouraged him to make true friends and accept the counsel of wiser mentors. Ivan's chief counselor in those days was the Metropolitan Sylvester, a bishop who had arrived from the city of Novgorod and was known for his persuasiveness, energy, and charm. Sylvester convinced Ivan to behave morally and, more significantly, to create a chosen council, a small group of trusted advisors who could run the country for him. The head of this council was a man named Alexei Adashev. Adashev was known throughout Russia for being an intelligent leader and a good man. According to Ivan the Terrible by Robert Payne and Nikita Romanov, he was scrupulous and incorruptible, always acting in the best interests of Russia. Adashev and Sylvester appointed many other laudable men to the chosen council. The most significant of these was Prince Andrei Kurbsky. Kurbsky was a young boyer who became close personal friends with Tsar Ivan. He was also a skilled military strategist with a strong sense of morality. These four people, Anastasia, Metropolitan Sylvester, Alexei Adashev, and Prince Andrei Kurbsky, made Tsar Ivan's early reign a promising and positive start. They passed many policies that reduced the power of the boyars in favor of the welfare of the people, and they helped defend Muscovy from the Khans, who frequently harried Muscovy's borders. By 1550, 20-year-old Ivan had had enough of the Khans. With the help of Adashev and Kurbsky, Ivan assembled an army 60,000 strong. His goal was to conquer the Khanate of Kazan once and for all. Ivan himself was not a great military leader. However, his counselors were quite skilled, and Ivan's religious fervor kept up the morale of his soldiers. Much as he had when he was 10 years old, Ivan made an extravagant show of praying for his military's success. 
In the middle of his army's camp, he surrounded himself with religious icons and sacred objects. He, the Tsar of Russia, was calling upon the Lord to help him smite the infidels of Kazan for the sake of Russia and all of Christendom. Ivan's war with Kazan would last two full years, but after many battles and a drawn-out siege, Kazan would finally fall into Ivan's hands. Ivan was 22 years old at the time, and by conquering Kazan, he had officially formed the Russian Empire. Ivan rushed back to Moscow, where he was greeted by his wife and his newborn son, Dmitri. With the victory, Ivan became an even more legendary figure. Songs portrayed the war as if Ivan had single-handedly defeated a frothing horde of evil men. With such overwhelming support, Ivan felt closer to assuming absolute power than he ever had before. Yet his perspective would soon be shaken to its core. In March 1553, Tsar Ivan grew sick with pneumonia. Fearing that his time had come, he summoned the boyars to his chamber. With all the men present, he ordered them to swear allegiance to his wife and son, just as his father had done for him and his mother. Ivan's chosen council all swore the oath without question. Yet others weren't so quick to follow the orders of a dying man. Some boyars preferred to install an adult on Ivan's throne so they could avoid the chaos of another regency. Other boyars hated Anastasia and her family, and still others had disdain for Ivan himself. To Ivan, all of this was death before death. The Tsar himself, the chosen autocrat of God, was being flagrantly disobeyed. To make matters worse, the fate of his beloved wife and his only male heir were in the balance. He had been terrified many times before, but nothing scared him quite like this. Ivan swore before God that if he got better, he would make a pilgrimage to Kirillov Monastery far in the north, a long and arduous journey, to prove his thankfulness to the Lord. He prayed for days, eking closer and closer to death. And then he got better. As soon as Ivan stood up from his sickbed, the remaining boyars swore allegiance to Ivan's son, but it was far too late for that. Ivan had seen their true selves, and his god complex began to go hand in hand with paranoia. The only person he could trust was his wife. All the rest were either traitors or soon to be. Still weak of body and mind, Ivan made preparations to leave Moscow on the pilgrimage he had promised his god. His advisors told him not to go. It was the middle of winter, and the journey was dangerous. At the very least, they urged Ivan to leave his wife and son in Moscow where they would be safe. One bishop went so far as to prophesize that Ivan's son would die if Ivan took him out of the city. But Ivan was resolute. He could not leave his family with traitors. Ivan and his family pressed northwards, and they arrived at their destination in June 1553. Ivan had achieved his pilgrimage, and all seemed well. He set about preparing for the return journey when tragedy struck. As they boarded the ship to Moscow, Dmitri's nursemaid tripped on the pier. The Tsar's infant son flew from her arms directly into the river. 
The child was hastily fished out of the water, but they were too late. The Tsarevich Dmitri was dead. Ivan returned to Moscow, swallowed by grief, a beaten man. While he had previously sworn vengeance, now he left the treachery in the past. He still couldn't trust his people, but what did it matter when he no longer had an heir? His malaise would last for months, until March 28, 1554, when his second son, Ivan V, was born. Ivan was ecstatic, but with the birth of another heir, his paranoia was reborn as well. Anastasia soothed his worries as best she could, and for the next few years, Ivan kept his attention on other things, like conquest. Ivan had always thought he was destined to rule over all the Russian people, so in 1558, he started an offensive against the Slavic nations to his west, Livonia and Lithuania. Unfortunately for Ivan, this war would last two decades, and it would prove to be one of his greatest failures. However, just as the war was getting started, another major event would shape the rest of his reign. In October 1559, Ivan's much-beloved wife, Anastasia, grew ill. Ivan begged his counselors, Sylvester and Adashev, to heal her, but they weren't doctors. There was nothing they could do. Her illness lasted for months, and in that time, Ivan's paranoia began to overwhelm him. He started to believe that his counselors were deliberately poisoning his wife. On August 7, 1560, Anastasia lost her life. Ivan lost his mind. Raging against the world, Ivan accused Sylvester and Adashev of casting wicked spells. He exiled both men to the furthest reaches of Russia, never to be seen again. Within a matter of weeks, Ivan had lost his three greatest allies and the three people responsible for all of his greatest achievements. Over the next few years, Ivan began imprisoning and murdering competent and trustworthy nobles for no reason beyond his paranoia. On January 19, 1563, he beat one of his military leaders to death with a mace simply for disagreeing with him. Ivan's only remaining friend, Prince Andrei Kurbsky, confronted him about this abuse of power. In response, Ivan banished his closest friend to the contested lands of Livonia. Furious with the Grand Prince's behavior, Kurbsky fled from Livonia and defected to the Lithuanian army. He wrote Ivan letters from behind enemy lines, accusing him of behaving like the Antichrist. Ivan was stunned and pained by Kurbsky's betrayal, even though he himself had driven Kurbsky away. Ivan responded with a series of letters denying that he had committed any acts of violence at all. Tsar Ivan proved himself to be arrogant and deluded, with a god complex and a disdain for any who dared to question him. When his closest friend condemned him, Ivan swore that he would never allow such a thing to happen again. He concocted a scheme to acquire the absolute power he was always destined to have. In December of 1564, Ivan assembled his retinue and left Moscow in extravagant fashion with no word of warning to the Boyer Council. As the Boyers remained in the city, 
Mystified by the sudden departure of their czar, they began to worry. They were in the midst of a protracted war against Livonia. They needed their czar to lead them to victory. They needed him to speak to God on their behalf. On January 3, 1565, the Boyers received a letter confirming their worst fears. Ivan wrote, If God and the weather permit, I shall go to Alexandrova Sloboda, and I commit the Tsardom into the hands of traitors. Nevertheless, the time may come when I shall once more demand the Tsardom and take it back. It seemed Ivan did intend to leave the nation without a leader. Racked with fear, the boyars rushed to respond with flattery. They wrote back, With grave reluctance and sorrow in our hearts, we have learned from our great Lord, who merits every praise, that he is displeased with us, and especially that he is abandoning the Tsardom and us. We are but poor and inconsolable sheep without a shepherd, and the wolves, our enemies, surround us. We therefore request and beg him to see fit to change his mind. According to historians Robert Payne and Nikita Romanov, Ivan wrote back, telling them that he would return to the throne on two conditions. The right to strike down anyone he considered a traitor and the right to form a separate kingdom with its own army, its own boyars, nobles, secretaries, and officials. In other words, Tsar Ivan requested absolute power. Faced with no other choice, the boyars consented. Tsar Ivan would no longer be a god-king in name alone. He would be a god-king in practice. In the early months of 1565, 35-year-old Tsar Ivan Vasilievich had become Russia's first true dictator. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll see how Ivan's use of absolute power earns him the title Ivan the Terrible. For more information on Ivan the Terrible, amongst the many sources we used, we found Ivan the Terrible by Robert Payne and Nikita Romanoff extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Giles Hofseth, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>